Hi everyone, this is David Wolf. I'm excited to get right into this week's episode of Beyond the Summit, but before we do that, I want to ask you for a little help supporting the show, and it costs absolutely nothing to you except 10 seconds of your time right now. If you could go into the podcast platform that you are listening to this episode on and rate the show with five stars, that would help spread the word and the incredible messages that our guests give to us each and every week. You can leave a comment or review of what you thought about previous episodes or wait to the end of the show and leave your review then. Now look, if you don't like the episode, when you're done, you can go ahead and change your rating as well. That's perfectly fine. But thanks so much again for listening to Beyond the Summit and supporting the podcast each and every week. With over 30 years of being an airline pilot, Todd Falstad has flown the world and back too many times to count. In this episode, he will talk about the challenges he faced during those years as an airline pilot, and he will reveal his top five places in the world he feels you should visit. Additionally, he'll talk about the love he has developed over the past few years, traveling the country with his wife in their RV. Welcome to Beyond the Summit, where we journey into the heart of human potential. I am your host, David Wolf. Here we will engage with extraordinary minds, unlock secrets of success, and discover what fuels happiness in our extraordinary guests. Prepare to be inspired, to grow, and to see beyond your own summit. I woke up so early this morning. I woke up at 5 a.m. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to do things to make my life better. And I have not been in a Bible study in a really long, long time. So I decided to join a Bible study. And it started at 6 o'clock this morning. So the other day when my buddy told me that they meet on Fridays and they meet at 6 o'clock, I told them, wow, you know, that's, that's kind of late to be starting a a Bible study Friday night at six o'clock. He said, no, 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 David, it's six in the morning. And we look forward to seeing you there. <laughs> but uh, I felt great. I felt great when I left this morning. What, uh, what was the subject? And um, it was when they were first coming into where first. Why do you ask me that question? You think I paid attention at six o'clock in the morning? I want to know if you paid attention. I paid attention. I participated. I just, it was six in the morning. They went where? They were going over and they were talking about, well, well, do we still need to do things like circumcisions or do we just trust in Jesus? So, and I'm not going to really talk. I'm not going to go too deep into it because you're going to have people out there that say, well, I'm not going to listen to a religious talk. So, but, um, you know, it's, it's the, it's the thing we never talk about. Right. You know, um, and, and this was, uh, this was an interesting facet of my career. I would fly with guys that would say that, you know, we can talk about anything in the cockpit that we want to, because you're trapped in there, man. You get sideways with somebody, it can make for a long, uncomfortable day, week, month, flight. Whatever you try to work through, there weren't a lot of talk in the cockpit because of, of the black box. I thought it had to oh, be no, no, all no. focused, not even close. And there's so many misconceptions about you know what it what it means to fly for a living, David. Uh, but th- I would fly with these guys, and they would say, "Hey, we can talk about anything except religion and politics." And you know, for I was born and raised in a evangelical, non-denominational church and that's that's my background and that's why i asked what you studied um you know i ascribe to those beliefs i consider myself a christian um it was taboo to have those discussions and where it really got interesting is when we started expanding and flying to places that were religiously and historically significant Know, particularly uh, Jerusalem. Man, I love going to Jerusalem. Uh, it was not what I expected. You know, I know when you, and I talked about this, and you, you wanted to put the spin on it that we should get together and talk about successful investments. And I said, but David, the, I, I don't know that I've made, if you're talking about the investments in the financial world, I'm not the guy to talk to. I earned money and saved money. And yeah, I would think I, you know, there's plenty of money. Um, 
the investments that I made that I wanted to talk with you about were the investments of travel and what it, how it shaped me, my life, the life of my kids, my wife. Uh, it was so many of those faceted changes, um, particularly in, in the second half of my career, because I was fortunate enough to be working at a place where our route map was expanding. You know, we were opening two new cities a month for, for many years. And, you know, international flights to new destinations are a big deal. They're politically charged. They, they bring a lot of clout to the airline. They bring a lot of uh, new, regardless of the reason for the travel, you know, the some of the places we went were industrial cities in Asia and China in particular were lots and lots of manufacturing was moving in that direction. And some of the places were purely tourist destinations. Um, some of them were, were driven by, by that and the, the, the politics of it. You know, those first couple of weeks of flights when there's new service, those cities change because there's an influx of travel agents and, um, People of notoriety, you know, wealthy people, people with um, high recognizability, sports figures, and so on. Their travel agents are saying, "Hey, this airline just opened service to this city. You need to go there and check it out. You'll be one of the first ones there. It's not all touristy yet." Um, that was a pretty interesting part of my career. But you know, back to your Bible study, I just just curious to what you were uh, what you were listening to. I don't I don't have any issues discussing with anybody about it. And I don't have any uh, prohibitions like so many of the guys that I flew with, especially in the Northeast. And they just, they didn't want to have that discussion. They weren't comfortable. I have no problem with with, with people having different opinions in anything, whether it is politics or, or religion or anything at all, just as long as we can try to walk away and shake hands and, and, and realize that we are going to have different differences of opinions. So all this time, I just assumed that you were Catholic. But I know that your kids no. went to private schools, right? No, you don't know my religious background? I don't. Were you? I was born and raised Jewish. No kidding. Yeah. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. So I was born and raised Jewish. Uh, I did marry someone that was Catholic. First girl I ever dated that wasn't Jewish. And um, I, I, I'm not going to go into my testimony right now, but you know, I can tell you later. And um, but I decided on my own because of something spiritual that happened in my life, a wonderful thing that happened in my life, that uh, believing in Christianity was the way for me. And uh, so really, um, our kids have really been raised, you know, even though they were, they were baptized Catholic, but they've also been baptized, some of them more than once, uh, just uh, in uh, Baptist. So... But everybody has got to choose their own path. Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. I, I, um, I, you know, one, one of the highlights of, of my career was the ability to travel to um, Jerusalem. And we flew to Tel Aviv. That's the commercial city. And um, I got to tour all of these religious sites over there. And you can't begin to understand how crazy it is there um, with the three faiths, you know, the, the the Jewish sites, the Arabic sites, and the Christian sites, and then the, the flood of people that go there, some of them to validate, some of them to demonstrate their faith, um, and some of them just as pure secular tourists. And uh, I, I did, over the course of the years that I was flying there, the the tour guides were something that usually the flight attendants found. You know, when you when you start going to a city and it's an entire crew, you know, you're talking about four pilots on the wide body airplanes and maybe as many as eighteen or twenty flight attendants, depending on the level of service. So those people hit the ground running, and some of them are really, really good at finding the cool things to do. So um, you end up listening, you know, with your ear to the wall, hey, what did you guys do on your layover? Because this is a new city. We, we haven't figured it out yet. You know, where do the crew members go? Where's the good places for dinner? Where, where's the where's the fun stuff to do? Because you're there for 24, 36, sometimes multiple days. You know, we had people that would 
hit the ground running, they'd jump on another flight and they'd go over to Amman, Jordan and, and, and go to Petra, um, which was no small feat. You had to spend the night in the hotel over there on your own dime. And then you had to do the border crossing the next day. And it was an all-day event to go to Petra. You had to come back, get on the night flight to get back to Tel Aviv in time to make your flight that you were actually working. And uh, that, that was the tenacity with which a lot of those people approached travel. Um, I had never had that much energy, but I still got to, got to do a lot of amazing stuff. Um, Israel is just one of those places where the, the, the dichotomy of people, the, the, the incredible differences in their food from one part of the country to the other, the, and throw in there the fervorousness of the religious extremes that go there. And it, it's an amazing place, amazing place to visit. Um, it's not a place to visit if you're looking to validate your faith. I, I saw some of the most crazy, goofy stuff there. You know, um, the history of the, the the Crusades in particular and the Christianization of, of Constantine, and, um, the reconquest of, of Europe and the reconquest of Jerusalem, um, and the renaming of some of the sites that, that are recognized you know that were biblically significant sites but they're historically inaccurate because constantine's mother was allowed to decide where things happened and uh and some of the things that i saw there were just just absurd you know um i remember being whisked we went we went to nazareth uh i'm sorry we went to bethlehem and it's probably the physically and emotionally least comfortable I've ever been in my life. I, I got that feeling as soon as we crossed the green line to go over to the Church of the Nativity that we were going to be um, in this very Christian environment, and it's a, it's a Muslim um, Palestinian-held area, and uh, I felt extremely unwelcome there. We go to this church, it's maintained by the Russian Orthodoxy, and there was 5,000 people in line at this church, but because we were on a tour coming in from the Israeli side, we were whisked to the front of the line. I thought those people were going to kill us. And we're standing around the, the, the nave, the, the grotto that goes down underneath the altar of this giant stone church. This church looks like it hasn't been swept since the last crusade. Um, and we're whisked down in underneath this thing, and there's this star hammered into the, into the marble it's made out of brass and silver. And people are getting down on their hands and knees and crawling under this table to reach down in this little hole in the floor where the star was demarcating the, the alleged birthplace of Christ within a couple meters. And, and they, they, they take this so seriously. And, and I was, you know, a little bit skeptical. I'm like, wait a minute, I, I was born in the mid-60s, and I don't think my mother could remember which wing of the hospital up. You're telling me that this star is within a meter of where Christ was born? I don't I don't think I'm wrong. And there's just so many sites that, you know, as, as archaeology goes on, they find out, oh, well, that really wasn't... So there's two. There's two. There's the archaeological site, which is what we think is true, and then there's the crazy fervent site that all the tourists go to that was established by Constantine's mother, whatever. I'd, I'd have to look it up. Was it the 900s or 1300s? Why not just look for the inn with a stable? And there you go. You'll yeah, find it. I'm sure that survived, right? It wasn't in a church. Didn't they know that? 337 AD was when, was when those sites were established. So just looked it up. What's been... Uh... I, we could, I could talk to you about Israel for, for so long. I've never been there. I know my sister, a lot of a lot of her family has been there. I've always wanted to go there just for the, the biblical history, uh, just from both religions, to, to be able to walk on that soil. Where else, where have been some of your favorite places to travel? And, and when, when I'm thinking about this, you know, airline captain traveling, how many years now? I, I was actively flying for 31 years. Okay. So, you know, let's talk about the, the you know, when when your son and I were discussing a little bit about his potential career path, um, 
I, I don't paint a very um, positive picture, and I didn't for my kids. I, I've got buddies of mine from college that all their kids are airline pilots too. And in fact, I just spent a week with Dale up there in Illinois. A bunch of us paragliding, paramotor, and we have a friend that flies a PPC. And um, you know, he's a pilot. His wife's a pilot, and his two kids just now got hired at major airlines. So. Um, everything in their family is immersed in this culture of airlines. And it's a weird, it's an odd thing to do for a living. There's so many hats you can wear as a pilot at an airline. You know, it doesn't, it's not always just sitting in the cockpit. You can get involved in training. And my counsel to your son is Brennan, right? Correct. He, um, I, I listened with great interest to your first episode where he talks about the fact that He's going to work in sales. And I'm not disappointed for him for not pursuing aviation. I know that it would not have been the right career choice for either of my sons. It's tremendously taxing. You know, there's no such thing as a nine to five. There, there's no such thing as a holiday. There's no no sacred dates on the calendar when you're not going to be asked to go to work. There's, there is no deference to religion or holidays as most businesses in the United States observe, if anything, the pressure is on you to work more during those times because of the holiday travel crush, you know, um, and it, it used to be just Thanksgiving and Christmas, and now it's gotten to be every, every significant holiday on the calendar. Uh, anything that can make a three-day weekend, it's crazy at the airport. There's just so many people that are demanding travel, and, and it was, that's a tough part. My, my early days flying domestically were not particularly happy days of employment at the airport. There was a lo- awful, for all the cool things about travel, and I know you want to get to that question of what was my favorite place, there's an awful lot of Buffalo, New York's in the middle of wintertime. Um, there, there's an awful, awful lot of forgotten Rust Belt cities, if dare we say Cleveland, Ohio, where, you know, you're, you're there on a Friday night, and there's some stupid party in the hotel, and you can't sleep. And you got to get up at five in the morning because you got to fly all day on Saturday. The weather's bad. Um, that ain't for everybody. Um, but on the positive side of it, I do feel like I had a lot of favorite places. It is really, really difficult to say that was my favorite place. I always enjoyed my German layovers, um, and you know, in in that period of time when the the airline was making great strides to make the route map on the wall look pretty. Um, and then we kind of used that as a euphemism because we went broke trying to make it happen twice. And we opened all of these new cities. Um, you know, we at one point in time, I think we flew to 15 places in the UK alone. Nonstop service to 15 different cities in the UK, about four or five cities simultaneously in Germany. Three cities in Italy, two cities in Spain, Portugal, um, and and pushing farther into Eastern Europe was something that didn't really happen until after I stopped stopped going to work. Um, but all of those places on any given day can qualify for being one of the one of the coolest places to visit. To man, this is depressing and boring. I want to leave. Um, depending on how you how you approach it or what the weather's like, you know the um, some of the cool things that I've done were, you know, getting out on a sunny day in Ireland. Well, they don't have a lot of sunny days in, in a lot of the northern part of the UK. You know, you're, you're inside in the rain. So it's, it's, it's pubs or going to the gym or, or staying in the hotel because it's, you know, 43 degrees and pouring rain outside. But, uh, you know, the, getting to experience Asia in particular, I, back to that concept of, the inaugural flights, you know, the first time we take a jet airplane to one of these cities or that we did, and this, this is old stuff. Wow. This, this stuff happened 25 years ago. Well, we, we had miserable financial management at the airline and, and through the court system and the restructuring of, of Continental Airlines, we got a CEO that came directly from Boeing. His name was Gordon Bethune. And we had had 20 other CEOs, so I didn't pay any attention to how well-credentialed Gordon was or how well he was respected. But he was instilled or installed, I should say, into the airline by, by uh, 
the investment group. They said, look, we'll, we'll bail Continental Airlines and their miserable financial balance sheet out, but we want to see a return on our investment and we want to see better leadership. So here comes Gordon. He was a former marketing director for Boeing. Um, he held pilot's ratings. He was the first CEO at the airline in a revolving door that, that had a pilot's license. He liked pilots, but he had a vision for dignity and integrity and trying to break down some of the barriers that were uh, between labor and management at the airline. And uh, he got these Boeing 777-224ERs, extended range airplanes, and they were capable of global dispatch right out of the box. So we started flying to places that, you know, historically would take you five flights to get to. Uh, you know, it, it used to be in the old days, if you wanted to leave the Midwest, you first needed to go to the West Coast, and then you probably had to stop in Honolulu, spend a night or two in Honolulu, and then you could get to all the Asian gateway cities, and we went nonstop. Um, the first time that I I flew to Narita, Japan. It was one of our primary cities when we took delivery of the airplane, the first airplane. And we ended up buying like 18 of them. So I did the second flight. I got trained on the airplane very early, and I did the second flight to Narita, Japan. And we were the only twin-engine jet airplane on the ramp. Everything else was three-engine airplanes and four-engine airplanes because the concept of travel on a two-engine airplane internationally was something that the the wealthy Japanese ticket purchasers were not uh, not getting their head around. They, they wouldn't do it. They, they insisted on a 747. Well, the problem with the 747 was the 777 could do the same thing for about half the price, half the cost. Operate, direct operating costs were about 50%. So they warmed up to the idea, especially when we ended up equipping the airplanes with, you know, lay flat first class seats and, and, um, silver star, gold star service in the front end of the airplane. The economy sections were always filled up anyways because there was always a demand for travel. But uh, it really launched us into some places. And I, I remember we started flying to Beijing and it was, it was before the Olympics. And the, when Beijing was awarded the Olympics by the Olympic Committee, they needed to clean up the city. It was a mess. So the hotel that we stayed in was in close proximity to a large, gigantic collection of what was called hutongs. And the hutongs were um, high-density tenement houses that were built in the, in the 1200s and the 1300s. They had no running water, no plumbing, garbage outside, just deplorable living conditions. And I'd wake up in the mornings there. And I'd go walk around those hutongs and, um, you know, the, the Chinese peasants that lived in those places, they, they were as fascinated with me because they had never seen Westerners in that part of the city. You know, most of the Westerners that would go to, to Beijing would, would go to the Forbidden City and the, the Great Wall entry points and that kind of stuff. But I, I'd like to get to the grittier side of things and get out there and see you know, what was it like to be a middle-class or lower-class Chinese dweller in Beijing? When you when you traveled all over, were you trying to more merge yourself into the culture for the small, small parts of time that you were there so that you could see what's really like to live here? That's a real good question. So I was thinking about this this morning. Um, yes and no. It, it didn't always work. You know, for starters, to plan to do anything ahead of time on a layover, when when you you've got time constraints, you know you you have to sleep some, and if you're jet lagged, you may be sleeping in the middle of the day. Um, so that doesn't that doesn't fit well with what does the common person do? Um, making friends sometimes happens. Uh, sometimes it comes with risks. You know, we we had. Back to the Israel thing, we had some flight attendants who made really good friends with Palestinians, and they brought upon themselves the the uh, condemnation and, and uh, scrutiny of the Israeli security forces. Going going through security in in and out of Tel Aviv Airport, especially after 9/11, just insane. We would leave the airport, 
and go to the hotel, but we would leave the hotel to get to the airport in most cities two hours before departure because we had about an hour drive typically from the urban area to the airport and then an hour to pre-flight and get everything ready to go. In Israel, we would leave four hours before departure, and that was all because of that security protocol. Uh -huh. So so sometimes that didn't work. You know, connecting with the local culture in Germany is pretty easy. It's pretty benign. Trying to do it in in an Asian country or trying to do it in, in a security-sensitive part of the globe, not You know, when I think about traveling, enriching people's lives, there's a couple of ways I think about it and, and I've had positives and negatives and, you know, think about like what you've done, going to Israel, being able to connect with my religion, with how I feel, that would enrich my life. Uh, my wife and I have on our bucket list going to Iceland to be able to see the Northern Lights and experience that culture and things that we've researched about that country, that would enrich our lives. Um, people that have done mission trips, I can't tell you how doing a mission trip to a third world country has enriched their lives. I've done a lot of traveling because I've been blessed to earn paid vacations through my, my work for the last five, six years. And you know we've gone to Mexico once. I think we're going to Mexico again this January. We've gone to Aruba. We've been to Punta Cana twice. We just went to Punta Cana uh, this past year and we went on our honeymoon. And then we've been to Jamaica. That Jamaica did not enrich my life. I felt dirty. I felt very <laughs> that's, that's dirty, fun. and I don't think I ever need to go back to Jamaica. Sorry yeah. if you're listening in Jamaica, but no. Um, so do you remember that, the, the Beach Boys song, um, Good Vibrations? No, the one, the, the Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, yes. I want to take it. Yeah. So it's Jamaica, funny. they a lot of that song. When, when that song was popular, um, I was flying the New York market to all of those places. And I always said, you know what we really needed to do was uh, buy the rights to that song for a commercial. Yeah. And have like, you know, pilots in, in grass skirts and flight attendants in um, standing on the, the, the air stairs to an airplane in one of those destinations beckoning, you know, Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, mm -hmm. we want to take you. And nobody ever, nobody ever took um, that, that. See, if 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 TikTok was around back then, you would have you'd have been viral. Yeah, no, no we, doubt about it. You know, we, about we took the family last year. Yeah, last year to uh, Los Los Angeles, and so of course my girls had to jump out of the van that we rented to take a picture in front of the LAX sign, and as they're getting off the plane, and then in front of the Hollywood sign, so that they could recreate. Miley Cyrus's party in the USA song dropped off the plane at LAX. And, you know, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> yeah. But like, okay, so even and going to, you know, Los Angeles and being able to see the sights. And for me, my highlight was standing and taking a picture in front of the Nakatawi Tower, the Nakatomi Tower from Die Hard, which sure. isn't called the Nakatomi. But, but like going on these trips, these paid vacations where it's always the same thing. It doesn't matter where we were. It was the same thing in a resort, an all-inclusive resort where the drinks were watered down and just made you feel horrible and just hanging out. And it's fun. It's fun to be with people, but it really didn't enrich our lives. We did do one excursion. One time we were in Mexico where we went to the Zenotes, the underwater caves with the water sure. and everything. That was pretty cool. And we did zip lining and we did the four-wheeling, but... Um, the Zenotes were pretty good, but other than that, if you're just going, I think if you're traveling, and you, I don't know how much you've done this because obviously you only had a very short period of time. I'm sure the airlines were putting you up at all-inclusive resorts. Oh, uh, you actually, you'd be surprised. Um, when we had the Punta Cana layovers, we stayed at the nicest resorts there. Yeah. Really? All right. Yeah. But, I mean, and, did, didn't that get to you like, oh, it's the same thing every single time we're here? Uh, not so much. No, not so much. In fact, I looked forward to, especially as, so, you know, everything is determined by seniority. When you have vacation, what flights you, what airplane you're on, who you get to fly with, who you do, who you have to fly with is a function of your seniority. And as I, as I got to the point where I was climbing the seniority list, we finally started to see some attrition um, in the way of retirements. My I got to do pretty much what I wanted to do. So, you know, in the, in the wintertime, I'd go to Hawaii. And in the in the springtime, I'd go to South America. And in the summertime, I'd do Europe. And in the fall time, I'd try to take a little time off and do, do a little less wine altogether. So I, I kind of chased those 
those dreams. We all did. You know, everybody wanted the the forty eight hour runway. Rome is just such a great city, man. It's such it's the the ultimate pedestrian city. Uh, if if you if you're into big cities, if you're into small cities, you know Lisbon, Portugal is is one of my favorites. In fact, I want to go back to Portugal and I want to go paragliding up on the on the coast up there by Navarre, where where uh, Banderas produces a lot of his video. Um, but no, I I, I wouldn't say I, the only time it was bad is if you got stuck doing something and you couldn't get out of it because of your lowest. And for for a while, I was flying the MD-80. I think most, I hope most of them are in the junkyard or they're flying, you know, in Africa now. They're probably, they probably don't meet the stage two noise requirements at most airports anymore. Um, but I, when I got on that airplane, it did a lot of cool stuff. We, you know, it was a domestic narrow body and it would go out to California and down to Mexico. So you, you could put together a four-day trip where you were going You'd have one layover in Los Angeles. You'd have a layover the next day in Zacatecas, Mexico, and then a layover in Cleveland, and, and it was commutable, meaning you could show up the morning of it on day one, and you could still get home on day four, and you didn't have to have any extra nights in the hotel or in your crash pad or whatever accommodations you had in the New York area. No, nobody lived in the New York area. Everybody commuted, so you know almost all of the pilots lived somewhere else because of the, the cost of living differential made it worth commuting. So, Yeah, I was going to ask you about like what was the worst or longest time that you got stuck. But as I was thinking about that, as I was hearing you talk, it made me think of something else. And this question, as an airline pilot, where were you 9-11? Ah, that's a real good question. Well, let me let me just tell you on let me I'll get to that in a second. But on the MD eighty, our marketing department started replacing all of the good flying that we had on that airplane with seven thirty sevens because we were taking delivery of a lot of seven thirty sevens. So the MD eighty got relegated to the shuttles. So you were in New York every day, running back and forth to Boston or Washington D.C. or sometimes Atlanta, and it, it was just horrible. It was taxing. It was noisy in the in the cockpit all the time because you're always talking to air traffic control with lots of delays and I got stuck there as a function of seniority so 9-11 um, on the 10th I had flown from Narita, Japan to Newark, New Jersey and I can remember this as distinctly as you can possibly imagine i so there there was a lot of awareness that something was up amongst my co-workers you know times were tense um the the global threat of terrorism was a reality um we knew uh, the the world towers had been bombed prior to that um they had arrested uh Try to think of his name, Yusef Ramsey. And if you're not familiar with Yusef Ramsey's, you, you need to look him up. He's in the Supermax prison in, in Colorado. Uh, still to this day, he will be there till the day he dies. And he was planning something called the Bojinka plot. And the Bojinka plot was a, a, a plot to take down 15 or 16 airliners traveling between the United States and Asia simultaneously one day and um they did a they did a test bombing on an airplane that failed and that's how ramsey's got caught so we knew especially the more internationally exposed crew members we knew that we were target and we had complained through our union and to each other a lot about the fact that there was no means of defense within the cockpit. We didn't even have doors on the airplanes that locked very well. I mean, you could lock them, but they were easy to kick open. So I landed, and I landed in New York probably about four in the afternoon New York time. I waited around. I got on a flight to Charlotte, North Carolina. Wait a minute. Um, what day was this? The tenth. Okay, the tenth. So you're in, okay. Go ahead. 
I, I've been up at this point. By the time I get to my truck in in the employee parking lot in Charlotte, I have been awake and wearing the same clothes for 26 hours. I get in my truck. It's now midnight, and I drive home. I get home about 1.30 in the morning. And as was always my attempt was, no matter how tired or jet-lagged I was, I tried to get up and interact with the family. It was my only chance of staying connected with my family. This is why I... I don't always think it's the right career choice for, for people that are interested in aviation. So, you know, I get home at one in the morning. I don't know which side of the clock is up or down. I pass out in bed, wake up about seven in the morning so I can see my boys before they head off to school. And as was my typical routine on my first day or two off at home, I'd sit in front of the computer and watch the stock market open. And I had just logged into an investment chat room and as I did, you know, there was an immediate awareness that something just happened. So I came downstairs and turned on the TV and, you know, they were talking about a, a twin engine airplane, probably a private airplane hit one of the towers. And I'm looking at the footage going, I don't think that's a private airplane. I think that was an airliner. And when the second one hit, well, the rest is history. But my phone rang about a hundred times that day. Um, you know, I reached out to my extended family right away to let them know that I was home and okay and wasn't flying. Um, but I had visions of all of my buddies crashing all day long. I didn't realize for a second that they would be able to get those airplanes safely on the ground. Um, in the sweeps of our airplanes, there was there were four or five weapons found on our airplane. Who knows if they were, you know, they may have been left over by maintenance people, but they found weapons on our airplane. Um, and, you know, United was one of the victims, and I, I wear a pin, or at least I wore a pin, a never forget type pin that commemorated all of those guys and uh, those particular four flights that day. But, you know, the, the guys that I knew that ended up in Gander, um, their stories are pretty amazing. They, uh, the fact that they were able to stop those airplanes before they were compromised, especially the ones coming back from Europe, because the, the way that international travel works in, there's an airspace system called the North Atlantic Track System, and it runs eastbound at night, which is why most of the flights that are available for purchase leave at seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, and then they run westbound in the daytime. And they move every day. And the reason that they move is to take advantage of tailwinds going to Europe and try to avoid those tailwinds coming back. So because of the fact that it was nine in the morning, most of those international arrivals to the New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and the bigger cities on the East Coast coming back, they're starting to land about eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, one o'clock. Well the late the late ones don't get back till four or five. And we had, we had 40 flights coming in. And I, and I knew I was sitting at my computer logged on to the crew management system, seeing who was flying each one of those things. And I'm thinking, man, I know that guy. I just flew with that guy. I spent last month. I flew with that guy all month last month. Um, I don't know who that is. And I, I went through all that, that mental anguish of, first of all, this is going to destroy my career. It's certainly going to going to halt my career progression it's going to have an impact on travel um i i left my house that morning to go to a bank about 11 o'clock i had an appointment to get a construction loan to build my hangar that i still own to this day and i remember standing in the bank they had wheeled a tv out on a on an audio visual cart right into the lobby i met with the bank president and he's he assured me Borrow the money, build the building. He said, "If if you have to sell it, we'll we'll be able to sell it for what it's worth." And he actually had to talk me into going through the the loan application process to get that construction. Then I came home, and um, you know the phone calls were still coming in. Of course, I had I had buddies that had domestic stories where they were forced to land in places they weren't scheduled to be in, and and they're. There are tales of woe and, you know, they're stuck somewhere and there's no rental cars, 
hotel, no flying for the next seven or eight or nine days. And, you know, I talked to a lot of those guys and gals in those situations too. Yeah. Were you carrying any burden or remorse or guilt that it wasn't you, not in those four airliners, but that where the other people that you knew they were stuck or they were forced to land that, or were you just thinking, man, I am so blessed that I, I was at home yeah, that morning? Definitely. And, and you know, the, regardless of what you believe about 9-11, you know, who was ultimately behind it, um, it, it, to me, it seemed like at the time it was pretty obvious what, what it was. And, and, um, man, as time goes by, David, I, I don't know that I'm a hundred percent right on what, what happened or, or what the motivation was behind 9-11. Um, for a, uh, for a season, there was a big push to get firearms in the cockpits. And, um, I participated in that program for a while, but, um, you know, because I don't go to work anymore, I, I don't do that at all. But for uh, a long time, that was that was pretty important to us. And that it took an act of Congress to get that, you know, and it, it's it's good program. It's still in place. I don't know uh, what percentage of guys are still, well, it's, it's a big commitment. And, you know, all top secret stuff, not supposed to talk about rules of engagement or tactics or limitations of the program or any of that stuff so um but uh yeah it did change it changed the career for for the negative it really did um the one of the big things that it added to the responsibility and the burden of doing the job was the fact that you had to comply with the tsa and, and i knew it was no surprise to me that the breach points or the points of entry for the 9-11 attacks were Boston and Newark. Um, you know, I was based in Newark for most of my career with a small exception of maybe one or two years where I had TDY deals where I was flying out of Denver or Houston. Um, Newark was my home away from home and I knew it intimately and it was substandard. The, the security at Newark the day before 9-11 was a joke. And it was a revolving door of people that didn't take the job seriously. They didn't have clear directives like TSA does. And it took a long time to get all that stuff hammered out, even well after 9-11. Uh, TSA was still making mistakes in policy and procedures and the training, the training of their people. I was thinking about Maui. Um, I'd flown to Maui quite a bit in my, right before I stopped going. That, that, that last year I was bouncing between Maui at Kona and an occasional Honolulu layover. I didn't really care for Honolulu so much because it's a big city, whereas Kona was this wonderful place to be. I, I, I love going to Kona. The hotel that we stayed at there was pretty nice. I mean, they had loaner kayaks. We'd go out and kayak in the ocean with the porpoises. And I used to fly with a lot of guys. There were triathletes. Well, so they'd go swim and run and I was like I'm not gonna run unless oh I'd show up in the lobby and they're in their running clothes and I'd say run I thought you said rum <laughs> rum so, so that sounds so alike come on Never let's go that. for a rum yeah I love a rum <laughs> but um I did a lot of a lot of Maui flying and and Maui's an interesting place it's two two volcanoes kind of merged together Oprah Winfrey owns one of them almost entirely and the runway sits between those two volcanic mounds and there's a venturi effect that blows through there. It can be blowing 45 miles an hour there just from the trade winds. Now, when we would land there, we'd get on the crew van and they'd take us down around the south end and to the west end of the island over where uh, behind it was. And man, that I didn't, I watched all those videos. I didn't recognize anything. It was all burned to the ground and I'd walked around there. Uh, and it's just, just a terrible thing to have happen. But, but. Tell you, on the, uh, I want to ask you this question, but I'll tell you a story while you're thinking about it. I wanted to ask you the first time you got back into the cockpit after 9-11, what was the emotions going through you? And while you're thinking about that, our 9-11 story was we were on our honeymoon on an all-inclusive to Punta Cana. 
by day six, we were done with the drinks. We were done with the food. We were just wanted to get through the next two days, get on the plane, go back home and start our life together. And early in the morning, we're packing up. We're excited. We get a call from the front desk saying, we're sorry to tell you your flight has been canceled. Your country is under attack. So for the, the, the better part of the next four days, we just sat and watched CNN over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, you had to get a break from it. Yeah. So uh, everything on my schedule got wiped at that point because they didn't know how they were going to do service recovery. And and one one of the pro any of the big events that affect airlines, like snowstorms or hurricanes, that cause lots of airplanes and crew members to be where they're not supposed to be for whatever reason. You know, there's a foot of snow on the runway; they can't land it at New York. So you know, some airplanes land in Cleveland, some airplanes land in Dallas, some airplanes land in in Washington, D.C. And and now you've got this guy who was anticipating being home and on a day off, and he's got something important. He's getting off the trip, and he's going to do whatever, or she's going to do whatever to to carry on with his life. Because when, when you get to your days off, that's your time, unless the airline's willing to significantly compensate you to do what they want you to do. And that's where I always made the most money was when things would get screwed up. But 9-11 was a little bit different. Um, so my schedule got wiped and we all went into a pool where they would call us with our next assignment. So I got a phone call about, I want to say it was probably about the 21st or the 22nd. They had resumed some flying domestically. I don't think that they went back to the international market yet, but we, we had airplanes that needed to be moved, and I ended up getting a call to Deadhead. In other words, traveling the back of the airplane to get to, I want to say Los Angeles or San Francisco. I'm sure I have a logbook record of it somewhere, but I, I also got to the point late in my career where I didn't keep a logbook because I didn't care. Um, and the computer kept me legal, so I didn't retain paper records after about the year 95 or 96. I, how many how many times do I need to write down a logbook that I flew somewhere? Um, but we ended up, I ended up getting on an airplane that maybe had 12 or 15 passengers. And I was sitting in first class and I wanted something out of my suitcase that was in the overhead. I remember standing up you know, after we'd reached top of climb, we're in level cruise flight, standing up to get, you know, but my cell phone or, or a magazine to read out of my bag, and it created an absolute panic amongst the flight. So the, the psychological toll of of nine eleven on people that worked in the airline industry was pretty heavy, especially some of the flight attendants. We we saw a very large attrition after 9-11 among the flight attendants. I knew some pilots that quit. I knew more pilots that they, in discussing it with their wives or their spouses, they moved away from the wide-body flying and went back to domestic narrow-body flying for the perception of less, less threat to, to terrorism. And there was a day where I was pretty certain that my epitaph would read killed by terrorists. You know, we talk about, about Israel. We continued to fly to Israel through the Intifada. And um, I know George Bush was fond of using a phrase, shock and awe. And if you translate shock and awe into Arabic, or I don't know if it's Farsi or what the language is, but the, the, uh, the word is in, Intifada. So that had a direct translation. It kind of sounded silly because it wasn't in the vernacular of the average human being to say shock and awe, but that's what intifada meant. And the Palestinian intifada in Israel was declared by the Palestinians as all-out war, and they were, they, were, they were blowing up buildings all the time. And I'd go to Jerusalem or I'd go to Tel Aviv, and we'd hang out in clubs and restaurants and I'd come back a week later only to find a, a FEMA tarp 
because that building had been blown up by a suicide bomb. It got so bad at one point in time that the the airline had big tentacles. Uh, they reached into a lot of the things that we did on our layovers and interpersonal line. And one of, one of the things that they suggested was that we not leave the hotel. We stayed at the David Intercontinental Hotel, which was a very, very nice place, walking distance from all of the government buildings in Tel Aviv and U.S. Embassy and, and, and within walking distance of Jaffa. But that that hotel was a solid concrete and it had pretty good security, but like, you know, they, they said, don't leave the hotel during that period of when there were so many bombings. That, you know, we'd sit on that rooftop terrace at the hotel and watch the F-16s that the Israeli Air Force had taken off with their bomb racks full and coming back empty. Um, and that, that, that threat of terrorism, I always said, you know, what makes you think that this hotel full of wealthy Americans and traveling Jewish people is an target? I'm going out and going out in the city and I, I would go out and walk around in the city. But, uh, you know, that, that, that was an interesting time. And the other interesting, scary time in my career was traveling to Southeast Asia during SARS, which was the, I, I believe I had SARS at one point in time. I was sick for about six months. I couldn't shake whatever I'd gotten in Asia, and uh, it it was scary. You know, you'd, I'd go to Hong Kong, and everything was closed. There was nobody on the streets, and it's such a bustling city that that's about as crazy as you can imagine. There being nobody out around walking around in Hong Kong. Well, speaking of getting sick, of course, we could probably spend an hour talking about the effects of COVID on travel. But I will tell you this, uh, during the COVID years, uh, where my company did not want to send me to uh, Mexico or Punta Cana or Jamaica or Aruba, uh, they gave us a, a certificate to do whatever we wanted. And so Jenny had this idea of, let's go to Yellowstone National Park. I wasn't really a fan of doing the park and the hiking, my idea of vacation is sitting on a beach and in the sun and looking beautiful well everything but the beautiful part i can do but um you've got a face for radio i do have a racist face thank you (laughs) so uh but we loved it we absolutely loved yellowstone and then you know there's a whole different way that uh you can travel and let it enrich your life and that's just staying here in the country and visiting things in the country like the national parks. And that's become one of our, our life goals is to visit every national park. I don't know if we'll be able to, but we hope to. And we hope that one day, like you, we will be able to have a beautiful RV and be able to travel the country and do work out of it and, and, and enjoy that. How has that changed your life? And where have you and your wife enjoyed traveling throughout this country in your RV? So let me, let me start this answer by telling you that for many years, because I had such easy access to air travel, that's what we did on our family vacation. So my boys have been to all the European capitals. They've been to Asia. They've been, I've got pictures of them uh, riding elephants in Thailand and um, standing in front of the Eiffel Tower and all, all of the been there, done that t-shirt type photos. And I always considered so much of the U.S. like, popular songs and pop culture that they're flyover states or flyover places. And I got to tell you, David, the, the things that I have enjoyed the most about travel here in has just been in the last four or five years, we've done, we've done four big circle routes through the United States. And I've always suspected that the people that run an RV or buy an RV and they get it, get in it. Let's say they live in Chicago and they drive that thing to the Grand Canyon. They're, they're doing two and a half days of driving. They spend a week at the Grand Canyon or, or four days at the Grand Canyon and drive back home. They're doing it. Um, so my plan for successfully experiencing now this, this is much more connected to local culture than I ever got to do with the airline type travel. 
we drive for 250 miles one day a week, and wherever that put us, that's where we would stay and explore. So, yeah, you know, you might not be at the Grand Canyon. You might be at the the Broken Arrow um, Museum of History or, or the, the Farmer's Museum in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Um, just amazing places that it's relatively affordable. It keeps the keeps the gas budget down that way. You're not you're not spending, you know, thirty hours on the road in any given stretch. Um, we found places out west where the the communities were just glad to have us. The camping was free, free electricity and free water, no sewer usually in, in those free sites, but there's lots of small communities in the American West that, you know, there's a municipal campground and it's camping there is free for seven days or for 14 days, you know, camping out on BLM land. Um, one, my, my wife likes to stay in the nicer higher end RV parks. Um, I, I don't mind doing that. I just don't like the clientele usually. I so. struggle. <laughs> I struggle if I don't have sewer, electric and water for my camper. I really do. I'm it trying, is nice. I'm trying to get better at it, but I really struggle. It is nice. Well, you know, having a, having a big platform enables you to have a very similar experience without all the connections. Yeah. Um, so if you can run the generator or if you're somewhere where you don't need the air conditioning and you can make 100 gallons of fresh water lasts three or four days, it, it really helps. You, know, yeah. you can't carry that much stuff with you. It, it's shorter times in the wilderness. But um, I would guess with the always seems to be rising cost of airline travel and the affordability of being able to stay in country and and do what you said and in my experience just in in-home sales that i do i see more and more people working from home yeah well why can't they do what your wife does which is to work from a camper or rv and travel the country and do exactly what you say drive 250 miles and stay put and explore for a couple of days and then move on I, I would like her to retire, by the way, um, but she enjoys what she's doing. She's, she says she's too young to retire, and one of the things that her continuing to work has enabled us to do is really help our kids out a lot as young adults, and now that we have grandkids, you know, that, that factors into it too, but um, it's put me in the position of being able to do an awful lot of um, paramotor and paragliding flying that's tough to do you know i i just went with one of our mutual friends out there to the west coast and we flew around it uh, monterey sand city and it was it was a terrible travel experience i got stuck in denver for four days on the way home and there were no hotel rooms no rental cars and no seats on any flights that's why i ended up stuck there and i i was on a revenue ticket i bought a ticket but my flight misconnected and um, you know, I, I not arrived out there. I didn't have any problems getting out there, but coming home was just horrible. And I really pined for the motorhome and the, the ability to just drive to where it's not as crowded and do something else. But, um, yeah, I, it's, I hope that it continues to be something that we can do in this country. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, they're going to have to add some more campsites because every campsite is booked. Yeah. I don't I want heard, to tell you what our secret is, but we always find something. Let, let me see if I, well, this is what I've heard the big secret is. You either book it six months out or you call the day that you're going to get there. That's what we do. So we, we like to go with no itinerary and knock on wood. I have yet gotten in a position where I had to drive much more than an hour to find somewhere to stay. You, there's a, there in, you would think that being the, the age of information, that everybody that owns a campsite or a campground would be hooked up to the internet so that they could get, but that's not the case. And you get out west and you drive, and here's a sign for a campground. You look on your app. You know, my, we've got a thousand apps between, you know, camping apps and harvest host apps and, you know, camping world apps. And here's a campground that's not affiliated or connected with any of those apps, and they got vacancies, and it's twenty four dollars a night. You know, they, they do exist. You just you're not going to find as many of them east of the Mississippi River as you do out west. Well, here's here's how I think we can wrap up this podcast today. Uh, we're going to kind of go back to a question that we got sidetracked and we never answered. But we're going to let you play travel guide 
travel guide, travel, travel agent, travel guide, travel agent, the top five places you would recommend someone go to in their life to enrich their life and make one of them somewhere in the United States. Yeah. At least one. Well, that that's fun. So, um, I'm going to say go to Machu Picchu. Uh, Lima, Peru is, is an amazing city in itself. The, the process and the amount of planning that it takes to get to Machu Picchu will involve you for about five or six days minimum. Um, the, the cultural differences between the urbanites that live in Lima, the mountain people that live in Cusco, and the journey itself from Cusco through Oliantantambo, um, uh, to the Machu Picchu site alone is is well worth the effort. It's expensive uh, to do it first class and stay in really nice hotels and ride on the Hiram Bingham train. It's going to cost you. It is not a cheap trip to put together, but uh, you can do it cheaper. You can hike that trail. It's amazing. You know the the, the things that you will see there. I ha- I have a video somewhere in my video collection on YouTube of me standing by rocks that weigh three hundred tons. And my remark is, there's no way that humans built this. No, no way that humans built it. That's my take. It, it was built by megalith people that inhabited the earth prior to humanity. That's my that's my belief. Or aliens, one of the two. I don't believe in aliens. So that's a bucket list trip. I had the 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 place that I haven't gone, and I haven't gone because of my perception of world politics and religion is the Great Pyramids. The Great Pyramid. I would like to see the Great Pyramid. I don't really have a desire to go to Egypt so much as to see the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Rome. Rome's up there. Um, I like Munich, Germany. I like Frankfurt, Germany. So those are uh, more to consider. I got to throw in a fifth one because it's it's so different than the rest of Europe, and that that's Lisbon, Portugal. It's a beautiful city. It's close to Africa, so it's got a lot of African influence. Um, the The food in Lisbon and the presentation of the food in Lisbon is some of the best on the planet. Uh, a lot of seafood in their diets and just fantastic high-end experiences in Lisbon. A very, very beautiful city. Great pedestrian place to walk around. You don't need a car there. Ah, domestically within the United States. I'd have to say, this is an odd one. I'm going to say Heber, Utah. It's one valley over, it's in the same valley as uh, the ski area out there. And it's, it's, you drive through a gap to get there from Salt Lake City, or, or we drove to Heber, and then I would go over to Salt Lake City to go to Point on the Mountain and, and hang out with the paragliding guys. But, and Heber is just a fantastic spot. It's beautiful. We were there in the early fall, so... You know, mornings were crisp and cool, and then it was in the mid-80s in the daytime. Um, very clean little city. My, we booked a week at an RV resort there and ended up staying three weeks because my wife liked it so much. That's awesome. See, I'm surprised you didn't say Cincinnati, Ohio. I know uh, you've been I there. I love Cincinnati, David. You know that, man. We, you, we had a great time there. I don't, yeah. I'm ready. I don't need it. Especially out there where you live, and not, you know, out there, oh yeah, Red's place. That that's that's pretty flying there. Yeah, cool. Well, there you go. There's a list of at least five places to travel to to enrich your life. I want to thank Todd for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, David. This has been a lot of fun. I this has fun. It's just, it's nice just talking. I wish you the best with this thing. You know, I, I listened with great interest when you um, talked about the concept, and then I, I got, I finally got through your first episode, and uh, I, I wish you well. I, I joke with a friend of mine that um, you've got a man crush on Joe Rogan. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't, let me tell you something. He's got a very successful thing there he's not doing it on his own like i am i tell you that he's i'm sure he's got a whole huge team of people doing that podcast but uh i listen to it for 40 minutes and i'll go what am i even listening to i don't even know what the topic is here 
that happens on many occasions listening to Rogan. But uh, he's got something that works, so who knows? Yep. Okay. Maybe I'll compete with him one day. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, well, we'll call you the Larry King of paramotoring. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for everybody that listens. Uh, if you liked it, if you liked this uh, episode with Todd, if you wanted to share with your loved ones about places that you could travel to, make sure you share it with them. And you know, if you want to continue to hear more amazing uh, topics and, and inspirational stories, make sure you hit the follow button, ring the bell to be notified when every new episode. But easy, easy way to remember it, Mondays, 7 a.m. Eastern Time, new episode each week. So there you go. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Beyond the Summit. Hey everyone, this is David. Just a quick reminder, if you haven't already, please go ahead and give this episode a five-star rating. Also, leave a review or any questions you might have for the guests and I'll make sure they get it. Thanks again so much for listening and we'll see you again next week on Beyond the Summit.